This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks. Okay, after a little bit of magic here in the studio, we are joined on the phone by Michelle Maloney. How are you, Michelle? I'm very well. Hello, Scotty. The Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Uh, what's that? What is it? Oh, yeah. it's, it's a fabulous creature, really. We love it. We love it a lot. Um, AILA, or the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, is a little not-for-profit that was created a few years ago um, by myself and a group of uh, friends who happened to be lawyers um, and it started its life as uh, a not-for-profit organisation that is responding to this kind of idea called Earth Jurisprudence or Earth Laws, um, which is all that Earth-centred law and governance. But it has since actually, by exploring what it means to shift from the current relatively destructive nature of industrial society's laws and governance, by exploring what it means to be more Earth-centred, we've... Um, <clears throat> collected along the way some wonderful other folks who are not lawyers and developed some pretty amazing programs. So we're a small not-for-profit, we're national in our work, we're connected internationally to lots of other networks, and we're really interested in how we might shift um, industrial society towards a more compassionate, humane and earth-centred way of living. Mm, Interesting, interesting. So it's it's centred around... Law, obviously. So, what what is the law? What are we talking about here? This is this omnipresent thing. But what is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, Ayla itself is centred around two things, I guess. Um, there's a, a wonderful deep ecologist in the Western sort of culture, which is called who's called Thomas Berry, and a lot of folks might have heard of him and his work. And he spent many, many years looking across. I guess, human cultures and, and our relationship with the natural world and developing this broader cosmology. So AILA is about two things. It's actually about responding to um, some of the ideas that Thomas Berry and others talk about, which is the great work, our way into the future, this idea that we have strayed from any kind of connection to the natural world or the non-human world and ventured into a place of what he called the waste world, kind of creating this artifice between ourselves and the reality of how the biophysical realm works. So we're responding to deep ecology and changing the cultural worldview as well as law. So just want to put the Thomas Berry <clears throat> inspiration in there. But what is law? Well, depends who you ask. If you put together <laughs> in a room folks who are from what I would call the Western or English common law tradition, they might tell you that law is a range of rules and institutions created by the state or the crown, um, which is a very centralised, what they call positivist notion of the law. But if you look at Indigenous cultures and others, um, um, many of my Aboriginal friends tell me that from an Aboriginal legal perspective, the law comes from the land and it's about the way you live and the rules you follow to live and nurture and survive. Um, If you look at a non-legal framework for how rules exist, they're norms. They're the, the things that we expect in a society that everyone's going to do so that we can have some level of order or whatever. So we're interested in the other stuff, which is we broadly call governance. Um, we often jokingly say that governance is the sexy stuff. And it's really about the whole kit and caboodle. It's how do human beings create the rules, the systems, the institutions and the structures 
that carve out their reality and the way that they go about their daily life. So people living in the Amazon rainforest have got a very different governance system to those living in my city, Brisbane, where we get up in the morning and perhaps jump in a car and drive to work and work within the realms of an office. Uh, So the governance systems, the rules, the institutions, the ways we create both the platform upon which we work and the rules that we engage with each other um, is what we're very interested in. Yeah, that's a similar thing. I mean, the, the governance sort of is governed itself by the laws that we set for ourselves. And I guess we still haven't really got to what the law is. I mean, basically, it's just a it's just a story that we tell ourselves, really, isn't it? What's right and what's wrong? I think so. I, I see some, some folks who would really, what I would call, buy into the current structure of law in, say, contemporary Australian non-Indigenous legal systems might suggest that the law is very real and it's enforced by the state or the government. But I personally believe that you can't look across human society's culture history without seeing that it's a completely made-up thing. Um, to me, the only real law or the only natural law are the, the laws of the, the, the planet, you know, gravity, um, oxygen, breathing in and out, all the good stuff. To me, there are fundamental rules and laws in the way the natural world works. I don't pretend to understand them, but I believe that our biophysical and spiritual life, which is connected to the very essence of the awesomeness of of planet Earth, is the true law. And actually, that's why I think that a lot of Indigenous societies had it right. Um, They structured their lives in a way that both revered the sacred and um, understood how they fitted into things and respected that everything had its place. Um, But if you're an Indigenous person today, the law is very real because it's enforced ultimately by violence. The, The legal system in Australia or in the US or in the UK or any number of countries you want to mention, is a very concrete-looking structure. It's big buildings, it's police, it's people in uniforms, it's judges, it's courts. Um, And if you do something to break the law of that system, you can have the ultimate freedom taken away, either through the death penalty in some places or by being imprisoned. So the law is both a social construct, but it's also very real and has very real material impacts on people and the natural world. So whilst we create it, uh, I live in hope that we can also um, uncreate and recreate it. So yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, though. It's a bit well, esoteric it's a, for a Friday morning. Oh, I know how we do that every Friday morning around here. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> it is a great start to the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> no, I suppose that really sort of pulls apart that notion of it's all in your head, doesn't it? Because once enough people get something in their head, like the law, then... It does start really affecting reality. Yeah, it's like most of the things we create in our society or our culture, they mm. become very real. And in fact, the work that Ayla does um, is about inviting people to critique and question and wonder about the systems we've created that we see um, as really supplying and supporting things like massive coal mines and climate change and the destruction of, of the beautiful plants and animals that we've evolved with. We invite people to really look at it at a systemic level, at a both a theoretical and a practical level, and say, not just law, but all of these systems that underpin modern industrial society are ideas, but they shape the material world, they shape our expectation and our interaction with um, the Earth community, and ultimately, I, I guess I would love to think that one day in the future we look back on what the Industrial Revolution and the colonial powers did to this planet as an anomaly, and we return to something like what many Indigenous communities continue to fundamentally believe, 
which is that the earth is our mother and it's sacred and we should be living in harmony with the other plants and animals and understanding what what an amazing thing it is to be alive on this planet in floating around in the darkness of space where there doesn't appear to be much other life out there. So I really hope that we can turn the systems and the industrial structures around in whatever form that takes, in whatever place you're living in, so that we don't destroy everything. Yes, yes, whether or not there's life out there, it's going to be uh, pretty unlikely that we're going to be able to get there to run away from this one. That's right. I mean, I hope there's life out there, but I'm pretty obsessed with what we have here. I think it's just fantastic. I've only got to go for a walk anywhere in Australia and I'll come across beautiful plants, animals, other humans, um, waterways, clouds, sunshine. I mean, what's not to love about being an earthling? It's pretty awesome. Yeah, right. So we've, we've got this story that went in our collective heads in the Western world here, and it's a very serious story. We'll do, we'll kill people over this story, you know. It's it's, yep. it's really strong, fundamental of what we, we build all of our beliefs on. So I guess when a when a habit gets out of control, you could call it an addiction, and we were sort of addicted to our law, I guess, and we find it very difficult to think about anything else. And that that's what you're saying that the Earth Laws Alliance is, is attempting to do, is to try and introduce a new story and make it acceptable yes i think and i think if we look back through human history change has never really been met with um, open arms and applause Um, change whether you looked at anything from changing the story around humans being property through the slavery era in the u.s to women getting the vote changing the story changing how things should be um, is often met with resistance much of it violent so um, changing the story is Firstly, about understanding the current framework and story that we live within and then trying to find the ways to resist and recreate. Yeah. Not easy stuff, but important. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I mean some of the, well, let's have a look at some of the fundamental sort of things that, that, that it's all, all constructed with our law. I mean, I guess the real base of it is property, is it not? I'm not really a lawyer, but I'm hoping you are. <clears throat> well, it's interesting because it depends how far you want to go. Um, the, the essence of private property is definitely important within the English common law system. And if you look at medieval England um, and feudal times, you know, where one person owned the land and other people had access to it as a serf to work the land, but they either were themselves not worth anything or they had no rights or they certainly couldn't own anything. What's interesting is people would say that the Enlightenment, um, you know, post-industrial revolution, the system changed. But The legal system is very much still in Australia. The non-Indigenous legal system, I would argue, is still a relic of medieval times. We still have the Crown. We still have um, our governments that are representatives of the Crown because a lot of people forget we're in a constitutional monarchy. A lot of people forget that the Queen is still technically, legally, the symbolic head, which, quite frankly, freaks most thinking people out in this day and age. Um, well, but so if you look at if you look at the legal system as a relic of a medieval legal structure, then property rights are absolutely fundamental, but they have in fact changed a lot over time. But private property um, is both embedded in the fundamentals of the European medieval notion of who is powerful and who owns what, but it's also embedded in the more modern notions of capitalism, consumer capitalism and neoliberalism. Because neoliberalism, which is what everyone points to at the moment as, as the, the evil force that sweeps across a community and turns it into a business mindset, it's still a relic from medieval colonialism. I mean, it, it, these, all these ideas are about 
power and status quo and owning and ownership. So, so yes, property is fundamental to the current common law Australian legal system, but it's, it transfers across time, um, and challenging it is indeed very difficult. Hmm. So I guess another another sort of uh, fundamental sort of view or a story that it, that it's all based on is that humans always organise in, in forceful hierarchies. Do you reckon that's a, a fair statement? Do you mean, does the legal system think that? Or are you asking if Ooh. the culture we live in thinks that? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> how, yeah, how is that, re- that statement reflected in the legal system? Yeah, I think you're right. I think hierarchy is embedded in the legal system in many ways, um, whether you even look just at the, the system of courts we have. You know, we have magistrates or lower courts, and then you can appeal to a higher court until you get to the next level and things. Um, Hierarchy is embedded in the notions of, I guess, state control, where technically speaking in a modern democracy, we elect uh, a representative to work in parliament on our behalf, but ultimately they believe in their, both their legal system and their political system, that what the laws they pass are then more important than perhaps community resistance to something that is in a law. So hierarchy is pretty prevalent in our system. Hmm. Another one would be that, um, well, I guess these are just the stories, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more like a religion, I suppose, rather than actually based in the law, perhaps. Certainly correct me if I'm wrong. So people sort of think that there's no limits, that, that there's all, I guess the law's organised so that we can grow and we can, there are really no limits except for the law itself and what it puts in place. Does that make sense? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, well, um, obviously, as someone interested in um, caring for the earth or environmentalism, a huge issue has been the awareness in the mid-20th, more around the 1960s and 70s, that we were living beyond our limits. Um, You know, the whole literature that popped up, particularly from the early 70s, around limits to growth. And to answer your question directly, it's not just the law that allows this idea of limitlessness and endless growth. It's so deeply embedded in our cultural mindset. Um, in a way, the law is just a tool supporting political, corporate and, and you know, mainstream Australian views that jobs and growth, jobs and growth, you know, all these mantras, this story comes from somewhere. So I think the law is one of many tools created, like the economic system is fundamentally created by some level of law, but it's also very much a mindset and a culture. So it's all, and that's what the systemic stuff is. And to bring it back to Ayla, what we're interested in at the Australian Earth Laws Alliance is not just law, and you asked what that is. So it's not just law in terms of hard law passed by a government sitting there enforced by the state. We're interested in all of the underpinning structures and institutions that steer us in what we would see as a fairly destructive direction. Um, so we're more interested in how you shift all of it, not just the law, the cultural mindset, the way institutions are created. Uh, the way people interact on a daily basis with the natural world, you know, their own earth ethical lack thereof. So, so definitely the law, if you break it down in its sort of fundamentalist approach to letting governments endlessly approve massive coal mines, no matter how much resistance the community puts up, yes, the law is supporting this mindset. But it's a circular problem because the mindset creates the laws to support the endless growth and the limitless Mm, very much, very much. 
So I guess with these hastily written questions, what I was was just, I guess <laughs> trying trying to get to is um, now the law is very much uh, recognises property rights and and has forever, like you say, since the medieval times, if not before that. Um, does it recognise like I mean? Property rights are one thing, but then human rights have been fought for for a very long time. How how old are human rights? Ah, uh, well, I'm not a human rights expert at all, but I think if you look really generically across the board, um, the Enlightenment represented a time when people started to see their own self-worth separate from the church, and it's kind of the birth of small-l liberalism. Um, the, the French Revolution is a great simple symbol of what it what it meant to, to, to live through the Enlightenment and suddenly challenge this corrupt, ineffective, feudal system. I mean, you'll remember from the French Revolution extreme violence as they rose up um, against the ruling class, the, the, the royals and all of their attachments. I don't, know the ex- I don't know all the words. And literally lopped their heads off and rearranged the power structures. <laughs> um, so human rights are seen as kind of having emerged from this broad idea. And the idea itself is fantastic. It's, you know, people can't just be slaves. They can't just be serfs. Everyone has value. Everyone has contribution. That's the nice side of it. But what happened is the powers that be, those who were already wealthy, kind of latched onto liberalism. And then in the Industrial Revolution, the groups who already had money and enough money to invest in stuff continued to kind of be this hierarchical structure. Um, And then serfs became, you know, um, fodder for the factories. So human rights as, as a frame developed after the Second World War um, in um, the structures that were created post the, the horrors of both what happened to the Jewish people and everyone in the Second World War. And the specific legal, international legal frameworks we have today are from, many of them stem from the 1940s, uh, post-Second World War, but ideas about freedom and justice and independence definitely have been around much longer than that. I think if you look at any any culture that was invaded, there was resistance and people fought for the rights of their communities, if not human rights. So it's kind of a garbled answer. But the, the ideas that really, I guess, became embedded in international law in the late 1940s after the Second World War had been growing for some time through everything from emancipation from colonial powers to the anti-slavery movement, you know, further back from the Enlightenment, so I think human rights are still in better shape than earth rights, and that's a pretty sad state of affairs given that human rights abuses around the world are still fairly prolific. Yeah, yeah. So how is, uh, how is nature and the natural world regarded, <laughs> regarded by the law? How, how is it seen in a courtroom? Yeah, well, in the courtroom, nature's not seen at all. Um, not at really, all. And if you, not really, no. Um, it's an interesting space. If you are looking at, if you go back to the basics of property law, property law is actually not so much about property, but as the rights and obligations between human beings. And it's about the bundle of rights that you get when you own something. Um, and there's some really fantastic literature. And one of the, the best writers in, a, in around the place is an Australian woman called Nicole Graham. And she's got a lovely book called Lawscape. And she points out, she pulls apart the fact that English property law very rarely actually refers to the natural world or even relates to the the reality of, say, the geographical space or the undulation of the land or how the water works. Property law is defining the rights and obligations between human beings over stuff that they own. And this can be the same for land, animals, furniture, anything. 
So how nature is seen in today, right, you know, without the historical lesson, how nature is seen today in Australian law depends on the, the bit of nature that you're looking at. If you are a, a cow in a dairy farm, um, you're pretty much well cared for property because you're producing milk. If you're a small rodent in a science lab, you're property. You were purchased. You can be carved up and done with whatever people wish. If you're a domestic pet, you may have a little bit more protection under certain laws around animal cruelty. But at any point in time, you cannot be convicted of murdering an animal. Animals do not have the same rights as, as people. Um, the natural world does not have its own legal rights in our system. It's still fundamentally property or under some level of care, um, like a national park. But it's still really still managed by the remnants of medieval society, the collective government. <laughs> So nature is um, not just in law, but in our cultural worldview, in industrialised society, it's very much just out there for us to use and to use up because, as you pointed out, we don't have a lot of limits on stuff. Yeah, it's a bad no, state of affairs. We think we're so technologically advanced and we, um, we literally have no formal respectful relationship with the natural world upon which we depend. Yeah, right. So you, you call yourself the Earth Laws Alliance. What's so good about the Earth, all this nature stuff? What, what's, going on? what's going on with it? <laughs> well, I think, I think the answer is pretty simple. If you see yourself as separate from nature, hold your breath for five minutes. Trying it, yep. Makes good radio. <laughs> what's so good about the Earth? I mean, I know that anyone listening to your show, Scotty, probably gets it immediately. Um, whether you're looking at the world from a biophysical point of view and we literally need to breathe oxygen atoms in and out to be alive, or whether you look at it from the pretty amazing you know, evolutionary history of the planet, whereupon the, the planet is formed from the Big Bang, this, this rock has emerged from space, and then throughout this wonderful multi-billion year history, um, Life has sprouted and grown and evolved and diversified. And as I say, in the inky blackness of space, you've got this beautiful patch that's self-created its own atmosphere. Um, and life itself creates the conditions for life. So I couldn't wax more lyrical about what's so cool about Mother Earth. But if you want a purely functional point of view, we can't live without her. And if you want a far more sensible, sacred view, um, it's a beautiful thing and uh, should be loved and protected and we should enjoy our time here. Yeah, right. So we've got this this fantastic, miraculous sort of thing that we're all completely dependent upon, and yet our complete formal structure of of organisation with with the might of force behind it can't even see it. No, not really. Just our system, though. You know, I cannot speak Aboriginal culture, and, you know, I refer to it with great reverence and and respect. Their laws... Um, were evolved over millennia of experience living in this continent. And when I give some presentations, I have what I think of some pretty important slides. One is what, what Whitefellas created as a map of the continent of Australia with the First Nations people's territorial estates mapped out there. You sort of say, for more than 60,000 years or time immemorial, this continent was governed in an earth-centred, bioregionally focused way by... Uh, a small population of human beings who were profoundly spiritually connected to all of life around them. And only 230 years ago, that system was disrupted by this European mentality, a medieval legal system, um, uh, 
kind of explorer and destroyer mentality um, and the legal systems that, that came over 230 years ago really haven't improved much. And even though we have had some level of success in introducing really important things, and I don't disregard them, like national parks and protected areas, um, certain levels of water and air pollution, some of the laws have done some good. But you've only, we've got a, a couple of maps that were provided to us by a phenomenal mapping project that shows just the sheer extent of, of vegetation loss on this continent in 230 years. Now, no matter how much your environmental laws are sitting there on the books, if we allow and encourage mass land clearing and allow and do not make illegal mass extinctions, um, what kind of legal system is that? Completely disconnected from the reality within which we live. Well, yeah, it can't even see it, as we said before. So in this weird sort of situation we've got here, um, mm-hmm. we have a whole lot of environmental lawyers and we have, you know, environmental laws and stuff, but what are they all doing? <laughs> oh, look, I would never, ever question environmental lawyers who are working really hard to protect things. What no, are they no, doing? No, they're um, doing, doing a good stopper yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'll give a good plug for all the EDO, the Environmental Defenders Officers around Australia. Um, I was recently, I was for about six years, the chair of EDO Queensland. I only stepped down recently because AILA and the new economy work we're doing has gotten so busy. But EDOs work, work really, really, really hard at an incredibly professional level to advocate for law reform within the existing legal system and to challenge um, unwanted development. For example, um, could be land clearing, could be coal mines. Um, so EDOs and other public interest environmental lawyers work very, very, very hard to protect what we still have um, within the system that we have. So that kind of um, literally at the coalface law is really important in this system. Um, AILA simply works in a different way because we're looking at, I guess, raising both um, awareness and developing practical projects that help people think differently about um, earth governance. So what are the environmental lawyers doing? The public interest environmental law lawyers are doing the good stuff. They're trying to defend the natural world, speak and work with communities, sorry, speak for in the courtroom and work with communities. Unfortunately, there's a massive industry of so-called environmental and planning law. Many of those lawyers are no disrespect to their excellent work, but many of them are actually working in law firms advising clients about how best to use the law to develop a space. Sometimes that could be fine. It could be the, the, the redevelopment of an industrial site or the, the reuse of urban areas. But a lot of the time, it's also about how can the big developers get access to land, clear the land, and whack in another rather disturbing to the eye, perhaps to the, to the soul as well, mass development of um, you know little houses all glued together with no trees left anymore. So, mm. so a lot of environmental and planning law is very much about facilitating the human use of the land, but unfortunately, and, you know, I, I can call on any academics to support this claim, unfortunately, most of those planning laws, whilst trying to develop the system appropriately for humans, is absolutely not working within any notion of ecological health or ecological limits. Yeah, well, let's go through a short hypothetical. I mean, this is completely hypothetical. I'm sure this would never, <laughs> never, never happen in the real world. <laughs> Let's say oh. we've got a, a beautiful valley full of wonderful stuff. Uh, it's a big food basket. It's full of farms producing an awful lot of food for the city not too far away. And there's a company who, who discovers that there's some, some gas locked up in the rocks underneath. Mm. And, and they want to come <coughs> and, and do their, their fracking sort of style technology to come and liberate that gas. 
mm-hmm. and, and the people in all the communities and towns who live there get wind of that it's going to pollute their water and, that, and they start wanting to oppose this. How do they go about that opposition? What happens? Well, you know, in an imaginary world, this is how it should work. The community all says, we don't want that here. It's an unproven technology and engineers who've been working in it say that even after 20 years, if you try to cap it, you can't and it's going to mess up the groundwater. And what should happen is the government should say, oh my God, of course, the community lives here. They work the soil. They breathe the air. We must not have this development. End of story. But you've got to remember we have a medieval legal system. And the reason I keep saying that is to remind us how antiquated this notion is. The government technically pretty much owns the land, except there are small exceptions of planning law and indigenous property rights, but I won't go into that. If the government is fundamentally still the land owner, and from medieval times the crown owned everything under the earth because they wanted access to anything golden and shiny and wonderful. So today, in modern Australia, despite whatever we think we are, the legal system does not allow the people who live in a place to stop unwanted developments of any kind, whether that's fracking or whatever. There's a convoluted process that the government structures will have folks involved in, like comment on an environmental impact assessment study or perhaps challenge something in a land and environment court, sure. But the whole system is geared to allow the developers and the proponents of this activity to move forward and the community has to resist it. Just imagine if we had a different legal system where new proponents came in and had to prove to the local community that their development was beneficial to them and to the natural world. Reverse the burden of proof. That would, in fact, be looking more at the beginnings of a transformation of the legal system. So right now, there are no laws that allow communities to stop unwanted developments. That is why Lock the Gate arose. That is why so many communities are now resisting things like the Adani mine, because the legal system is basically allowing it to happen. Mm, Well, yes. And when you look at it cold and hard in the light like that, it makes zero sense. Why should people far away, often in another country be able to incorporate an entity, create it as a piece of paper, set up an office and say, we're going to come in here, we're going to do whatever we want to the land, and particularly when it comes to CSG and other certain kinds of mines where they're really outside a lot of the existing planning laws and it's just allowed. That is not the law. That is a mindset and that's a political structure that allows those things to continue to happen. Mm, so I guess uh, yeah, you, you've called it medieval a few times, and in, in those—that's a personal opinion, folks. That's probably not how any other real lawyer would assess it. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they would. Just haven't done their research. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> just look at something when, when if you commit a crime, it's the crown versus Scotty. It's mm. the crown. Um, sure I reckon is, that's pretty yeah. medieval. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so. In, in those sort of medieval times, particularly the later medieval times, I mean, there was all sorts of stuff going on inside the country. I mean, we, we're talking about British law here or England English law, I suppose. Um, yeah, what were they doing outside the country? Oh, gosh. Joyfully raping and pillaging other countries. Um, colonialism, what, mid-late 1500s when the Spanish, the English and several others just couldn't stay home. They wanted to go and find spices and trees and fun things to kill. Sorry, I'm being flippant, but colonialism is really the the beginning of, of true globalization. Globalization is not a new thing. It happened a long time ago. And the, the forces, the uneven forces of power, um, that lovely book by Jared 
diamond, you know, guns, germs and steel showed that when the conquistadors or the, the British Imperial Army turned up in a place, they didn't just bring guns and horses and things to physically overpower folk, they also brought their diseases. So what were they doing in other countries? They were looking for so-called, inverted commas, resources to use. Um, you know, the slave trade, stealing other people's stuff, unfair trade conditions, the usual stuff. So they were building an empire, I suppose. They were, what were of they course, doing? they all had their empires. What were they doing with all this stuff that they got? They must have got a vast amount of stuff. Where do you think the 1% came from? Oh, they just kept it. Yeah, of course they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's how capitalism, and in fact the, the nature of a corporate structure, so for folks who don't know, I mean, companies evolved primarily with colonialism when people said, we need to pull together enough money to build a big fleet of ships and toodle off somewhere. So the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company were one of the, the kind of the shiny examples of this new structure where people with money pooled their money and the money then was owned by this new legal entity, this company. And the company could then use this money to go and do things and it would, it would pay back to the original investors some shares or a profit or a dividend. Sorry, they own the shares. And that was really how European powers, both through the coffers of the royals and the money that already accumulated for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of medieval-style inequity. Um, but then the sort of capitalism as we know it, which is folks investing money together to make a project happen and then sharing the profits of that project, was born in many ways through colonial invasion of other places. So the wealth has circulated around in the so-called first-world countries for a very long time. And anyone who's looked at the history of the 20th century, um, you know, the the freedom movements of any country that was part that was under the, the yoke of English or other colonial powers, by the time they extracted themselves from the power of these nations that had sucked them dry like a parasite, they were then developing countries because everything <laughs> everything that they had had been sucked out by colonial powers and you know sitting on the the, the mantelpieces or the walls of, of the wealthy in Europe. Um, and so many countries still had amazing, phenomenal culture and um, their own wonderful natural resources, but men, m- many of their systems had been destroyed by colonisation. And the legacy of that is, you know, continued through the 20th and we're still dealing with it today. Hmm, interesting. And the one percenters, if you look at the truly wealthy, um, many of them, not all of them, um, many of them are from very old money or they come from old corporations or they've inherited stuff that's evolved through time. Um, in a way that's pretty unfair, you know. Yeah, right. So is it true, like I've heard down the way, that if we make a law in Australia and we want it to actually become law, we have to run it by the Queen before it actually becomes no. law here? Or the Governor-General, no. Interest- I suppose. Um, well, every country, every modern democratic country has its processes for a law coming into force. But you might be surprised to know that, in fact, it was only in 1986 with the Australia Acts that the true practical legal disconnect between Australian lawmaking and the Crown um, went into into place. So, for example, before the 19... I think the last case that went up to the Privy Council was maybe as late as the 70s. But So before the Australia Acts, technically speaking, if you had a case and it went to the High Court, you could then still appeal to a higher level, which is the Privy Court in England. But we can't do that anymore. So although we're a constitutional monarchy, in day-to-day life... Um, the Queen isn't approving our laws. Our Parliament is. Our own Aussie homemade dudes are. But, for example, when Gough Whitlam got um, 
Sacked. I'm trying to use an appropriate word. <laughs> when he got sacked, you know, the Governor-General, as the representative of the Queen, um, made that call. So it, it's, it's confusing ground. But on, for all intents and purposes, on a day-to-day basis, um, we can't point to the Poms anymore. We can only point to Turnbull and the gang in charge of Parliament for the making of Australian-based laws. But the system itself is still connected, and the origins of it, its history and its culture, um, you know, comes from the place that our colonial forebears came from. Yeah, well, it's a bit When closer. I say our, I mean me. Yes, yeah, a bit closer to home, I suppose. Last time I took a square rigger over to see the Queen, it took months. Um, <laughs> That's right. right so um, you've mentioned now that there's these companies coming about to, to do the bidding of empire and go and actually sort of collect all this stuff from overseas and bring it <laughs> bring it back home. Um, and what, what was the corporation's sort of initial relationship to royalty? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not... I've been waxing lyrical about historical stuff, but I'm no historian. Um, certainly, I know when Queen Isabella sent off the conquistadors and the dudes, Columbus and such, they were kind of on commission from the world. But colonialism, you know, was very much connected to the power structures. So corporations and and the rich working in cahoots with the government of the day and the royals of the day. So, you know, it was really the people with money trekking off across the planet to get more money. So, but beyond into the details, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. The uh, the Community Environment Legal Defence Fund over in the States, the CELDF, um, <laughs> they've got this fantastic document about the founding of Pennsylvania where they gave absolutely everything and they wrote it all down to Mr Penn <laughs> in, 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 in response to a debt that his father owed the king or something. So, well, the king owed his mm. father... And he got this absolute control over a whole region. He basically became king. Yeah. Yeah, so over someone else's land. Well, that's right. Well, but colonialism, no matter what, no matter who got the land, it was already somebody else's land. So, you know, in Australia, we were set up as a convict colony. The the governors, the the government of the day controlled all that land. Um, But it was still Aboriginal land, no matter who ended up with it down the track. So um, the land grabbing, land stealing and the decimation of culture was just part and parcel. And I mean, I think to really understand colonialism, I guess you'd have to really sit back and try to imagine what it must have been like to be a rich white male in those times where they truly believed, whether it was from religious background or their own cultural indoctrination or all of the above, that they were superior to all other races and certainly superior to nature. So... Um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine how anyone could feel they had the right to do those things. But uh, this is what they were taught, what they were told and what they believed. So we're stuck with a system now where it's really transitioning, um, trying to move away from the destruction of what's been going on mm. and trying to look for something new. Yeah, yeah. So I guess they, um, when they did come to Australia, they, they sort of came across this... this came up with its legal concept of terra nullius. Now, what does that mean? Oh, well, when colonial powers, particularly the English, when they would move into a new place, they would have in international law. This was not sort of just made up by those individuals in a certain country. There was an entire international legal system created by Europeans to support European invasion and land stealing. So it was all their own little make-believe world that said it was okay to do this. So I, I'm pretty rusty on this stuff, but there were actually a number of different recognised ways 
that colonial powers could take over a place. For example, treaty. Um, if, if they came in and there was a group there and the group signed a treaty and acknowledged that this colonial power could take the land, then that was legally appropriate. Um, terra nullius was actually just a legal word meaning sort of empty country. And the British argued that their legal right to take over the continent of Australia was based on the fact that it was empty land and no one owned it. So they didn't even have to prove in, in international law of the day that they had done some sort of process that was acceptable to steal the land. They just took it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a great affront to Aboriginal people to have been invaded in the first place, but to then be considered nothing more than the landscape itself, as opposed to other countries like um, in Canada, the US and New Zealand, um, the invaders recognised that people were there and they tried to create a treaty. That didn't always happen. In some places it did, some places it didn't. But Australia was kind of like, I think, quite frankly, at a personal, it's one of the most disgusting examples of a really disgusting you know, phase in human history. So not only did they invade, but then they just then didn't even make any effort to pretend that there was any legal requirement on them to do something and to recognise those who were here before them. Mm, well, I guess this is a good time. That's why the Marbo case was so important because the High Court with Eddie Marbo and the gang, their hard, hard work proved continual occupation and, and you know, previous claim to a place. Um, and the High Court, thank God, you know, recognised that people were here and that they had a place and it was their, their home. Um, that's putting it in simple non-legal terms, but that's why Marbo was so important. It doesn't end all of the, the problems, and it certainly hasn't led to something like a treaty or something else, um, but it has opened the conversations up better. Mm, so what what's the sovereignty concept? What's, what's that about? Because we're right in the middle of that right here, aren't we? Yeah, and look, um, Scotty, I reckon you should grab some Aboriginal people and have a yarn about sovereignty and recognition. Um, I, as a, as a white fellow, as someone who's descended from the invaders of this country, I actually always recommend that people get on their show... Um, you know, different Indigenous or First Nations peoples to have a yarn. These issues are really complex and important, and I don't want to be speaking for that, if that's all right. So yeah, no um, worries, sovereignty but... really, the simplest thing, though, is just that what it is is the First Nations people saying to the Australian government and the Australian people, um, we, had a, we had a legal system here before you came. We had a culture. Um, we had a, a phenomenal, one of the oldest continuous cultures on Earth, um, and we are neither recognised as the first peoples in this country or many other things. You know, it's such a complex web. So sovereignty, in a way, is saying, we want what you've got, which is, you know, control and self-determination and our own systems. Um, and the Australian government will always resist these things while it's not led by um, compassionate or visionary people. So, But I really, I reckon your show would be awesome if you could grab some, some really cool people and have a yarn about these issues because they are very interesting and they're very... They're always going to be here. And to be from the invader community or the settler community um, like myself, um, you know, these are the things we should be thinking about every day. We yeah. want to live here in Australia and, and, and do the right thing, then we need to rearrange how we work and how we live with each other. Absolutely. And I always find that the, uh, the First Nations people have done their research very, very well on this stuff because it's, uh, mm. it's immediately very, very important to them. So... Uh, yeah, well, yes. yeah, they've, they've yeah. paid more attention. Their laws, their systems, their culture, their boundaries, none of it's gone away. You know, a it. lot of white fellas are not connected to it or understand it, but it was all there when we got here. We've stuffed some of it up, but it's all still here. And those systems 
are both important and worth learning from, but also we have to respectfully get out of the way in certain spaces and try to work out how we live here um, in a way that's more respectful, appropriate, and, and quite frankly, more beneficial for everybody. So mm-hmm. I don't have any of the answers. I just know I'm part of the, 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 the group of white fellows who are trying to ask the question <laughs> and engage in a way that we can learn. So Totally, totally. So... Uh We've just sort of talked about terra nullius, meaning empty land. I mean, at the moment, could you could you term it as bio nullius, that nature is empty in regards with the law? That's a really interesting one, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Um, That's from First Nations people, that concept. Yeah, I, I guess. I can't remember who said it. Sorry, there. <laughs> well, actually, there's a, a wonderful Indigenous lawyer, um, Virginia Marshall, she also has just recently published her PhD as a book under Aquanullius, which is about water rights and water allocations. So it's all a very interesting issue. Um, But yeah, the legal system today is basically just built on a human-centred way of engaging with the world. And if it was an earth-centred way, it would be very, very different. So Yeah, all right. Well, well, um, we're going to just duck back to this notion of slavery where we're people are are actually considered as property and I mean how how long ago did that sort of all fall over in legal sense? Well it depends which regime you're talking about unfortunately slavery is alive and well today and it's happening right under our noses just last week or two weeks ago when I visited Melbourne um, I was working with a woman who was working with this amazing organisation rescuing women who had come to Australia under false pretenses some relative or somebody else had, you know, invited them to come, so they had a job, and then they literally get locked in a house and are sex slaves. So slavery is alive and well. If we talk about the kind of, I guess, institutionally approved slavery in the US and in other places, then, you know, that broke down just before the Civil War, um, but slavery is unfortunately hugely prolific today. It's horrific and scary. Mm, sure is, yeah. So, um... So that was the law treating humans as property, wasn't it? Yeah. So I guess chattel slavery. What, what, that, that system was the law treating people of colour or people who are <laughs> other as property. And um, Today, slavery exists, but it's illegal in most places. So it's still happening. People still treat each other abhorrently, but it's not institutionally approved. So I think that is a big difference. And how did that change in the law come about from people being viewed as property, a whole section of humanity being viewed people as property? People resisted it. But, yeah, uh, people resisted yeah. it. Just good old-fashioned civil society, you know, um, speaking up about it, uh, advocating for the changing, the abolition of slavery. Um, all of these systems were only changed by people resisting it. Hmm. And the, um, did they wind up getting rights? Is that sort of how some of that came about? You know, I can't actually remember. I'm not an, um, an American Civil War expert, or nor am I an American law expert. So they abolished slavery and they acknowledged that all people were equal. So I guess technically they went from being property, like a chair, to having human rights. But they weren't framed as human rights in those days. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but that's what happened. And I guess... Um, yeah, like you mentioned before, the, uh, the 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 elevation of women from from property because there was a thing called chattel marriage, and I guess chattel just means property that can be moved about. So you could move your slaves about, or you could move your wife about, and do things yeah. with them back in the yeah, old, well, in the old English law days. 
Well, and although they weren't technically seen as property, they weren't entitled to vote until, depending on which jurisdiction you look at, early 1900s. So women were often seen as the property of their husbands, certainly when it came to things like rape or sexual assault in a marriage. There was no such um, offence because they belonged to their husbands. Um, they couldn't they couldn't own property in their own right. They they couldn't work if, you know, they weren't, you know, allowed to. So, you know, those systems have all changed. Mm. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Now, I guess this is starting to happen around the world for, for nature, isn't it? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the rights of nature movement? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the the place to start is that a lot of, Deep ecologists, thinkers and writers had for some time during the 20th century pondered um, our interconnectedness with the natural world and lawyers themselves didn't engage much around these things. Even the creation of a national park doesn't give rights to the natural environment. It just means humans have an obligation to protect the area. Um, in the 1970s, some of these ideas were, were thrown around. There's a famous article by Chris Stone, Should Trees Have Standing?, and he sort of threw this idea at his law students that what if nature had its own legal rights and could speak for itself in court and could use people to support its rights more significantly. But I guess the more interesting stuff, and I, I think one of the reasons um, people are talking about it at the moment, is because in 2008, Ecuador was the first so-called modern constitution in the world to actually recognise the legal rights of nature. In 2010, um, Bolivia in, created a new national law that recognised the rights of nature, over in the U.S., Seldef, who you've already mentioned, the Community Environmental Legal Defence Fund had been working with communities since, I think, 2002, 2003, helping local groups fend off a disastrous and completely unwanted corporate invasion of their land and waters by creating their own local rights of community and rights of nature laws. Um, and so these ideas, particularly the Ecuadorian Constitution and Bolivia and Seldef's work, were floating around for some time and were very influential, but... It's been the last couple of years that things escalated because in a completely different process over in New Zealand under the Treaty of Waitangi, you've had um, so-called compensation agreements where the Maori and government folks negotiated certain settlement agreements uh, under the treaty, some of which have seen one river and a forest granted legal rights of their own. But it's a complex mix because it also quite beautifully in the in the written word tries to capture the Maori spiritual connection and values in those those places. So so New Zealand's been in the news a lot and has had a lot of interest in it. And then this year was really interesting because apparently out of nowhere an Indian court declared that two rivers had their own legal rights and this was in response to activists taking cases saying the government wasn't enforcing basic environmental laws, these rivers were hugely polluted. Um, and then other things happened earlier this year. Um, I think Mexico City passed a city-level law, and Colombia has also, in a court ruling, um, ruled that the Atrato River has its own legal rights and should be able to, you know, defend its existence um, to, to evolve and thrive and live rather than be endlessly destroyed by humans. So that's a snapshot of activities around the world. But what does it mean? Two things. Perhaps the simplest way to explain it is, number one, this is the really the kind of Western law system almost talking back at itself. It's saying, you've had this system where nature is property. We're going to change the laws so that nature is not property, that it in fact has its own legal rights and you can set up a structure so humans can speak for it. 
that does give the natural world more capacity to defend itself um, in, in the human laws. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't take us back to something which I would prefer, which is a truly Earth-centered worldview. It's the beginning of things. It can chip away at it, but it's still fundamentally saying we're going to carve up that legal system where we're going to try to now define what is a river, what are its rights, what can it defend. So I'm not saying that I don't support them. I do. I, I think rights of nature are really interesting and a really interesting evolution in the Western sort of European-style legal system. But I'm actually, as an Australian, a lot more interested in how we shift our worldview to be much more like the First Nations people on this place who see no division between nature and man. We are all the same thing and we must care for all of it. I think that is a much more beneficial way to unravel the mess we've created in an industrial society. But I am very interested in the rights of nature um, as a mechanism and a tool to try to push back against this current way of legal working. So, yeah, interesting days. Yeah, right. Now, now the uh, the Earth Laws Alliance last year held a, a conference down in Sydney, which you can find a lot of the speeches from on uh, on our, our SoundCloud site at Behind the Lines, 98.3 at SoundCloud. So get along and check those out. There's some great stuff there. What came out of that conference? What's, what's the big thing that's coming along now for you? Oh, the New Economy Conference? Because yes. we actually had a couple of conferences last year. Ah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you take AILA back to our bare bones, we are interested in shifting industrial societies, underpinning structures from human-centred to earth-centred. Thomas Berry, the guy who wrote the great work, he looked at the four big underpinning structures of industrial society, governments, law, economics, um, and you know religion, education, cultural stuff. If you look at that, if you try to pull apart all of these systemic interactions of why we treat nature so poorly and why we're destroying our home then you can't kind of work on law without looking at economics and you can't look at economics without looking at education and religion. And so the whole lot's interconnected. So for us, we work on a range of programs. We've got the Australian Centre for the Rights of Nature, which is, I've actually got a seminar this afternoon here in Melbourne with Melbourne Law School, looking at the rights of nature and just examining analytically how those things work. But several years ago, it became extremely obvious that we had to work with folks who were engaging with the economic system, this completely often made make-believe system that is telling us what is of value and telling us who should own what and who can own what and how things can be constructed and just sort of pull it apart. So we were invited by Bronwyn Morgan at the UNSW, University of New South Wales, to co-host a conference last year looking at um, all these alternative economy things that were popping up around the place. And what we Bronwyn and I decided that it'd be fun to see if there was an interest amongst the kinds of folks who are out there who both care about the environment and or are engaging in new economy activities, if people would like to come together and build some kind of network where we can learn from each other, support the kinds of economic activities that can be managed within the limits of the Earth's capacity rather than letting the economy destroy everything um, and really redesign the system, which sounds pretty grand, but what we've been doing since the conference in August last year is convening spaces where we've had about between probably 10 and 13 working groups, people interested in anything from food systems or energy systems or um, the Indigenous Economics Working Group, ecological economics, um, all these different folks just interested in particular themes and sectors, but with a view to the longer-term transformation of the economic system so that the economy can actually live as a space to support humans and the natural world rather than be the dominant thing that we feel like we're slaves to. 
So the conference that we're holding in Brisbane on the 1st to the 3rd of September is a follow-up. It's like the second conference, but what we've been doing in the year between the two is slowly building from a community development sort of grassroots up kind of way. Um, dozens and dozens of people who are wanting to engage around this and be part of this network. So we um, will be launching the New Economy Network Australia, NINA, at this lovely conference. And if people are interested, it's the website has the info. It's well, Everything is under construction. It's all emerging. And the website is really easy to find, www.neweconomy.org.au. And we still have places at the conference, so people should get there. It's amazing. We've got um, Indigenous economics stuff. We've got energy, food, housing, cities, communication, our own you know, personal journeys through trying to transition to new economy, a um, whole range of amazing keynote speakers as well as gazillions of sessions, conference dinners, site visits. Um, I think next year, if we have one, we'll call it the New Economy Festival because it's turning into a much more fun <laughs> fun space than you would ever expect from an economic space. Yeah, nice one. And there's some really interesting people in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, the program's amazing. It's worth looking at. It's on the homepage. It sure is. And if you wanted to get there from Canberra, the cheapest way is to take a bus down to Sydney and then a plane up to up to Brisbane. Is that right? Yeah, awesome. works out half price. I found, <laughs> found that out after I got my ticket, of course. But, um, <laughs> all right, um, yeah, yeah. What, what else would you like to add into all of this? Oh, I guess um, thanks for the time to have this big, long yarn. Um, I guess I would just like to invite anybody who's troubled by, you know, the condition of the world to, to, to not give up hope, to connect with others who are doing great work. Um, and if you're interested in finding out more about what my organisation does, our, um, the AILA website is earthlaws.com. .org.au. We're easy to find and my email's on there somewhere. Shoot us a note. Um, we're a, really uh, a grassroots member-driven um, organisation. We, we like people to get involved and to, 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 I guess, engage in whatever capacity they wish. We're connected to academic institutions, several international organisations, lots of activists and wonderful people all around Australia. And um, I like to think of us as an optimistic space where we know that there's been a phenomenal amount of damage caused to the earth and climate change is taking us in a, in a direction we don't want to go. But there's an awful lot of awesomeness left on our planet and we believe that we should leap out of bed every day and, and support, nurture and, and resist, I guess, in appropriate doses. So, yeah, just an open invitation for folks to have a look at Ayla and have a look at the new economy and get, in, get into both. <laughs> Nice one. Well, Michelle Maloney from the Australian Earth Laws Alliance and from New Academy Network Australia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Scotty. Lovely. No worries. See you later. Bye.